Well, we all have rhythms in life. All of us here, there are certain rhythms that we all do. One of the things that I've been trying to do is before I wake, when I wake up in the morning, before I do anything, I've been trying to read two psalms before doing anything else. So before I get on social media, before I check uh, the long list of emails that I have, before uh, I'm texting anybody, I want to wake up in the morning and read two psalms a day. I actually got this idea from uh, Pastor Ramon and, and Gabe Cheney, and I've been doing okay at it. If I'm honest, uh, I miss some days, but God is still on the throne and it's all good. But we all have rhythms in our lives that we are doing. That's one that I'm, I'm trying to do. Some of you are here and you have a rhythm of going to the gym from time to time. And some of you feel shame and guilt because you don't. God is still on the throne. It's all good. But there are rhythms that we all have. Some of you have children and you have uh, sporting events that you have to do, right? Taking your kids to soccer, gymnastics, baseball, football, whatever the sport is. And there's a rhythm in your children's life, in your family's life that you have to do. They have practice that you have to go through. Uh, the great theologian Alan Iverson said, practice. <laughs> Talking about practice. But you got practice that you got to take them to. You also have uh, uh, tournaments and, and, and games, right? Some of you are here this morning and you're tired because of all the sporting events and rhythms in your family's life that you got to take your children to. Rhythms. We all have rhythms in our lives. I think that when we think about baptism and the Lord's Supper, I would say that that is a rhythm, that is a practice, that is an exercise that we do as the family of God. At Roosevelt, we have baptisms periodically throughout the year, a couple times a year. And then Lord's Supper or communion, you may have heard it said, uh, we do that twice a month typically the first and third Sunday of each month. So that's the rhythm that we have, and we all have rhythms that we have to, uh, that we have to do. The two ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper, I want to look at the first one, and it is baptism, and we're going to look at Acts chapter 2 to, to, to look at that, all right? Um, just so you know, for my note takers in the room, there are two questions that I want to answer for you this morning pertaining to both of the sacraments. Here's question number one that we're going to seek to answer. One, why do we baptize? <laughs> Pretty simple question. Why do we baptize? The second question, how does baptism shape us as a community? So why do we baptize and how does baptism shape us as a community? And for the Lord's Supper, the same questions. Why do we do the Lord's Supper? And how does it shape us as a community? So those are the two questions that I'm going to answer this morning. 
So Acts chapter 2, when we think about baptism, baptism is the initiation right into the Christian church. Baptism is a, is a public commencement that a person is a disciple, is a follower, is a student of King Jesus. It's a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality. We see this when we open up the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. For those that may not be familiar, Acts is a great book that talks about how the Holy Spirit forms a community. How the Holy Spirit empowers people to go on mission to preach the gospel, to heal people, to plant churches, and to be a beacon of light no matter where they are. This is what Acts talks about. In Acts chapter 2, we have Peter, the apostle Peter, and we have his sermon that he preaches. He does this at Pentecost. Pentecost is one of the three uh, agricultural festivals that the people of Israel did. This is where they celebrated the giving of the law, the giving of the, 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 the Torah in the Old Testament. In our passage here, we see the Holy Spirit being poured out on a group of people in a miraculous way. In Acts chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, it says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. As they began speaking in tongues, people were were talking and saying all of these things. And people were able to understand it in their own native language. The Spirit of God rested upon them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So much so that some of the people were there, they thought that they were drunk. They thought that they were a little, had a little too much whiskey, had a little too much margarita, they had a little too much of, uh, 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 of some wine. But Peter stands up and says, no, 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 no. These people are not drunk. They are filled with the Spirit of God. And as they are filled with the Spirit of God, they're communicating things that people in their own native language can understand. The text says that he lifted his voice. Fascinating, he quotes Joel chapter 2. And in Joel, it talks about how the Spirit of God will come down on men and women, on boys and girls, on sons and daughters, and they will prophesy. In some ways, this is a fulfillment of what we see here in Acts chapter 2. The formula in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Acts, when someone comes to faith and they become, they they get baptized, there are Typically, three things that happen. One, there's some type of proclamation. There's a preaching that happens. And then after the preaching, there's some type of response in saving faith that they have. And then 
they get baptized. Preaching, response, baptism. If you don't believe me in the, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, verses 12 through 13, we see Philip, he preached. The text says they believe. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Preaching, response, baptism. That's not convincing enough. You can look at Acts chapter 16. This is the conversion of the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas is doing ministry, killing it for God, killing it for Jesus, and it lands them in jail because of their uncompromising allegiance to Christ. And as they're in jail, they can't stop worshiping God, so they start singing praises to God. So much so that it gives a, a, a Philippian jailer um, an inkling to ask, what is going on? And as they are preaching, as they're teaching, as they're singing, <laughs> the text says in Acts 16 that the Philippian jailer said, well, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep reading on. It then says that him and his household not only believed, but they were baptized. Some type of preaching, some type of teaching, some type of response in saving faith, and then again, baptism. That is the New Testament outline that we see typically when it comes to people becoming saved. It's no different here in Acts chapter 2. So as Peter delivers a spirit-filled and, 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 and gospel-centered sermon on the day of Pentecost in which 3,000 souls were saved, and not only saved, but they were also baptized. I don't want us to skip past that. This is somebody that preaches and 3,000 souls were saved. Can you imagine that, right? Ramon's been preaching for over 20 years, and I don't think he's ever had 3,000 people become saved in one sermon, right? Maybe it'll happen one day, Bishop. But that is a lot of people that, that become saved. And it is a miraculous thing. There's a, a spirit of God that, that happens with this. I want you to understand and listen to the content of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Because the content that he preaches is very, very staggering. Listen to the robust theology that he proclaims with, with power, with, with mightiness, and with conviction. In verse 22, he talks about Jesus and his mighty works. We know that Jesus does miraculous things so many different times today, but also in the Bible. He proclaims the mighty works of God in verse 22. In verse 23, we see that he talks about the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, the eternal plan of God, and the crucifixion as well. 
Not only that, but he also talks about the resurrection in verse 24. The, 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 the foundation of biblical Christianity, Peter is preaching the doctrine of the resurrection, that Christ rose from the dead after three days. In fact, God raised him from the dead. He also says elsewhere that if the resurrection didn't happen, then none of this matters. Coming to church on Sunday at Roosevelt, it doesn't mean a thing if Christ did not rise from the dead. Christians should be the most pity, he says. But again, Peter is, is, is preaching the resurrection. Not only the resurrection, continue with me in verse 38. He talks about repentance. He talks about forgiveness of sins. And he talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is a lot of, of, of doctrine, a lot of teaching, a lot of theology in these few verses. And this is what Peter is doing to thousands of people. Baptism and the Spirit are linked together, but first there has to be a recognition from the hearers. In other words, there has to be some type of response that they give. Verse 37 says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. This phrase, cut to the heart, means that they were conscience-stricken, uh, remorseful. They were broken-hearted. They felt a sharp pain associated with some type of anxiety or, or remorse. And we can say that they were convicted. All the things that Peter was preaching and saying to them, the Holy Spirit convicted them from the heart. Biblical preaching strikes a blow to the core of our being. The inner person, who we really are before God. And sometimes you can hear something and you say, ooh, that one stung. That's what it means to be cut to the heart. Story of David. You know, King David wrote Psalm 51 and um, a shepherd boy and a man after God's own heart. We read about him in the Old Testament. We also read about an interaction that because David didn't do everything right. He had some issues. But there was a prophet that came to him, Prophet Nathan. And this prophet came to him and confronted him about the wrong that he has done, that he did. And when that happened, David was remorseful. He was cut to the heart. There was some type of recognition that hit him deeply. This is what's happening in our passage in Acts chapter 2. And very similarly, the crowd asks, kind of like with the Philippian jailer, what should we do? 
And here it is. Peter says, repent and be baptized. Repentance has this idea of not only a change of not only a change of thinking, but also a change in action. The Holy Spirit works in such a way that convicts us that we can acknowledge our sin, acknowledge the wrong that we've done, but also give us the power to be able to walk in newness of life. This is what repentance is. So the first question, why do we baptize? Well, we baptize because Christ commanded us to do so. We read about this in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where Christ tells his disciples, go therefore and make disciples. But the question is, well, what does it mean to make disciples? Well, he tells us in that passage in Matthew 28, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and also to teach them everything that Christ commanded. So why do we baptize? We baptize because Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, Messiah Jesus, our leader, our ultimate shepherd, the head of the church, has told his people to do so. And we're called to be obedient as children of God in the family of God. The purpose of baptism is to, is to glorify God by being obedient to his word and celebrating Christ's saving work on the cross for the one who is being baptized. It's a celebration that we get to partake and we get to witness people that are baptized. This practice is a symbol and a sign of that reality. So for the teenagers in the room, for the teenagers in the room, if you are thinking about baptism or if you have been baptized, I want to encourage you to, to, to pray about that, to consider that, to think about that, because baptism is a physical manifestation of what is already going on inside of you. It's a physical expression of what Christ has already done in your heart. And essentially, you're just publicly announcing that you identify with Jesus Christ, which is an amazing and a great thing to do. It has great significance to the church because the gospel is put on full display. Now, before I go to the second question, I just want to give a word of caution about baptism because uh, I know depending on your background or depending on where you come from, there may be some uh, misconceptions, but I just want to say that baptism doesn't save you. In other words, just because you've been baptized, that doesn't automatically mean you are in the family of God. Now, baptism rightly understood and rightly done is definitely linked to your salvation story, yes? But just doing the act itself doesn't automatically make you a follower of Jesus. The second question, how does baptism shape us as a community? I think it, I think it shapes us in one way. One, it's a public demonstration that you want to follow Christ. It's a public demonstration that you want to follow Jesus. There's a reason why we just don't 
necessarily do little private uh, baptisms where nobody can see. There's a public aspect to that. And even in the early church, there was a public aspect. So much so that some of the people that were baptized, it actually cost them a lot. For some, it cost them their family, their job, their social status. It was a risky thing to get baptized back then. Not so much now, but I'm just saying that it is a public demonstration. Keep in mind in Acts chapter 2, it's a crowd of a bunch of people, and some are Jewish. Yes? Some are Jewish in which some of them called for the execution of Jesus a few weeks ago. And Peter is calling them to repent and be baptized. This ordinance shapes us to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ above anything and everything else. Some of you know that uh, my first year of college, I went to Long Island University, the Brooklyn campus in New York. And on that campus, um, I had some great times, I had some not great times. But one of the things that I remember was um, there was a guy who was a senior and it was in, in myself who was a freshman. So I'm on the campus and I'm coming from freshman orientation. And as I'm walking on the campus, I see this individual. Now, keep in mind, this individual knows my family. And he didn't know that I was going to LIU. So when we see each other, he's like, oh, man, I didn't know you go here. What's going on? And we start talking and whatnot. And he says something to me. He says, hey, man, anything you need, I got you. Any help you need, anything, I got you. Now, you got to understand that this person, for some reason, he had just some favor with everybody. The professors loved him. The coaches loved him. All the girls loved him. He just was a guy that everyone loved. He was the true definition of big man on campus. So when he said, anything you need, I got you, I took that literally. And I didn't necessarily didn't do everything right. But because of my identification with him, I started to act a little different as a freshman. I started to act like I was the big man on campus because of my association with him. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is because of our identification with Jesus, because of our identification with Christ, because of our union with him, it should affect how we behave. We should act differently because of our identification with Jesus Christ. I think baptism is one way that we identify with him. Amen? The first ordinance of the church is baptism. The other one is the Lord's Supper. So if you want to go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 26. This is also known as communion or the breaking of bread, or some of you may have heard it said of, of uh, the Eucharist. 
Now, I want to say this up front. Admittedly, this practice seems a bit weird and strange. Can we be honest? It seems a bit weird. It seems a bit strange to those who may not understand the significance of it. And some people may accuse Christians of being uh, cannibalistic, if you will. But that's not what's going on here, even though it may seem like that, all right? We have to understand that the bread represents the body of Christ, and the blood represents his shed blood on the cross. So it's a, it's a symbolism, if you will, when we think about the Lord's Supper. Just like baptism, it also reveals the truth of the gospel vividly as we partake in this meal as a diverse family. It's a means of grace. It's another rhythm that helps shapes us into the people of God. In our passage, 1 Corinthians 11, this is the most comprehensive description of the Lord's Supper in the Bible. In fact, one commentator says, this is the earliest account of the institution of Holy Communion. Indeed, it is the earliest record of any words Jesus and one of very few incidents in the early life in which Paul describes. In verse 23, Paul is indicating that there is a tradition that was passed down orally uh, and in written form. And its genesis starts with the Lord on the night that he was betrayed. I'm sure some of you here have been betrayed before. I don't need to see a show of hands. In some form or some fashion, we've all been betrayed by somebody, some people. And Jesus can resonate with that. He can resonate with being betrayed because he also was betrayed. But this tradition, this reminds us of that unforgettable night before the crucifixion of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, there are six movements, six actions that happen when they took the Lord's Supper. In verse 23, the early church, one, took bread. It's pretty simple, right? They took bread. Number two, in verse 24, we see that they gave thanks, they broke it, and they spoke the words, this is my body. And in verse 25, they took the cup, number five. And six, they made reference to Christ's blood and the new covenant. Six actions, six movements that they did. And this is six movements that we do today when we take the Lord's Supper. So the first question, why do we practice the Lord's Supper? Like, why do we do that? Well, because ultimately Christ commanded us to do so. And as I said before, he is the leader, he's the shepherd, he's the head of the church, and we want to be obedient to him. And there are a bunch of things that the church should do. But two things for sure that we should do is baptize, and we should take the Lord's Supper as family. We should take communion as brothers and sisters in the Lord. You know, in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, Jesus says a weird and strange thing to his disciples. And he basically talks about this idea of taking his flesh and drinking his blood. 
And some of the disciples, they left. <laughs> and I always thought about that. The disciples, some of the disciples left. A disciple is a student, follower, or learner of Jesus. Some of them left. Mm. But some stayed. And Jesus said, you guys going to leave too? And one of them said, where are we going to go? You have the words to eternal life. So we do this practice. We partake in this because Jesus commanded us and told us to. And the second question, how does the Lord's Supper shape us as a people? Remember this motif of, of, of a rhythm of things that we regularly do that shape us, that molds us, that forms us into the people of God. The Lord's Supper is one of them. The first thing I think is, just like in baptism, it's a public demonstration. I think the Lord's Supper shapes us to be people that remember. Uh, specifically, it's a public reminder of the grace of God. Every time we come in and we take communion, the first and third Sunday, it is a reminder of God's grace, God's undeserved love that he bestows on those whom he chooses. Because we are reflecting on the death of Christ and everything that that meant and what that accomplished for us. Jesus says in John, it is finished. We are remembering the death of Jesus in such a way that gives us hope. And we know through the resurrection, we do have hope because he rose from the grave. But it is a public reminder of the grace of God. The second way that I think it forms us is it forms us into the ways of obedience. I know we talk a lot about grace here, and amen for grace, amen. But don't get it twisted. My mom used to tell me that when I used to like act up and do stuff wrong. She used to say, don't get it twisted. Don't get it twisted. The Bible does have things that we are called to obey. Amen? There are certain things from God Almighty that we should obey, period, full stop, even if we don't like it. I think communion forms us into the ways of obedience. Why? Because he commanded us to do it. So when we're doing it, we're walking in obedience. We're walking and it's forming us into the ways of obedience. And the third way, I think, that it forms us as a people, and I think this is a really important one, is that it gives us assurance of our salvation. It gives us assurance of our salvation. Now, some of you here may struggle with your salvation. You may struggle with doubt. Am I a Christian? Am I a believer? I think the Lord's Supper sovereignly and strategically is placed for us to do to assure us that we are in Christ. When we're confessing our sins, when we're reflecting on the death of Jesus, when we're reflecting and contemplating on his resurrection, when we're doing all of these different means of grace, <laughs> the fact is by us doing them, 
And if it's from a genuine heart, in some ways, I think this assures us of what Christ has already done in us. Philippians 1.6 says, and he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. There is assurance for you, believer. And I think the Lord's Supper is one way that we can be assured of our salvation. So as we enter our time of response... As we enter our time of response, I want us to prepare our hearts as we confess our sins to God. Because after our response of confession, we're going to take communion. We're going to partake in the Lord's Supper. We're going to partake in this meal as a family of God, and it's going to form us, molds us, and shapes us in a way that we should go. Just so you know that this is going to be more of an extended time than normal. But before we continue, this passage in 1 Corinthians also says that we should not take communion in an unworthy manner, or we will be drinking judgment upon ourselves. In a minute, we're going to take some time to confess our sins before the, our God. Maybe you need to confess through thought, through word, and deed of everything that you've done this week. Perhaps you need to reconcile with a brother or sister. Perhaps you're harboring bitterness and hatred and prejudice towards a group of people. Whatever it is, I want to encourage us to not take communion in an unworthy manner. When you think about the cross of Jesus, it levels us all. Uh, it's the ultimate equalizer. Because no matter how much money you have, education you have, or how little education you have, or where you've come from, we all are guilty before God. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the cross is the equalizer that we all can come with our hurt, with our pain, with our issues, knowing that God is the one that can heal. At the cross, there is healing for broken hearts. Our sin, our brokenness, God gives us a new life if we turn from our sin and trust in him. A change of mind, but also a change of action. He gives us eternal life through faith and repentance and belief in his resurrection. The gospel message, the gospel story. We normally take a minute of silence during this time, but today we're going to take two minutes of silence. This two minutes of silence is meant for us to confess, but also just to be in the presence of God. 
So however you feel led, you can stand, you can kneel, you can just sit in your seat. Let's take two minutes of silence confessing our sins before.